Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. You are tuned to Deep Dive the All Music Books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve Jay. Our guest today is author Michael Washburn, who is the author of Tom Petty's Southern Accents in the 33 and a Third series. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me, Steve. I got to say that the first couple of paragraphs in your book, in the introduction, are, are, are pretty devastating. <laughs> they recount Petty's last show in Hollywood in pretty detailed, and that was just a week before his death. Yeah, almost exactly. And then to quote you, yeah, this is the part that you say, it's over, both the show and Petty's career. And we could say his life. Man, that was bleak. <laughs> it's bleak. I mean, it also just happens to be true. I know that doesn't reduce the bleakness, but I think that part of the reason that the book opens the way it does, you know, this is a book about Southern accents. The most famous song on Southern accents is Don't Come Around Here No More. And the first few pages of my book is actually about American Girl, which was the last song on the band's first record. The reason it's framed with his last song is one, because that is poignant. The way that I end up reading the performance, particularly with the sort of visual imagery that accompanies the final performance of American Girl, it seems to me a direct rebuttal of some of the stuff he did around 85 with Southern Accents when he toured quite heavily under the iconography of the Confederacy, including having a big backdrop of the Confederate battle flag. So what the reason I realize it's devastating, it's a lot of real deep petty fans have found it a tearjerker section. And I understand that, but starting with that note showing this is his last final public gesture kind of sets up the entire arc of the book, which ends up I think ultimately, although it calls some of Tom Petty's decisions into question, some of his judgment into question during the 80s, ultimately, I think, ends up being an admiring portrait of a guy who was very public about how he copped to his mistakes, you know, and then tried to remedy or ameliorate the, the impact of those mistakes. So really, the reason that it opens up with his final statement is because I find it a real powerful counterargument to some of the stuff he does elsewhere in the book. It's fairly poetic, too, from a musical standpoint, that American Girl was his final encore at that L.A. Yeah, show. Yeah, I mean, it's, I always start to feel somewhat like a ghoul when I start talking about Petty's passing with regard to the book. This was, the what, the 40th anniversary tour? This was the final show. The entire um, tour was bookended pretty much between the, the first track on the first record and the last track on the first record, right? The set list didn't vary at all. I saw him a couple times on the show. The only variation in the sets I saw were in the middle. He would sometimes substitute in and out a couple of different tracks from Wildflowers on the suite of Wildflower songs he played in the middle of the set. So, yeah, he was definitely creating a sort of arc for the set list for that show, and it just happens to poetically resonate with the fact that that ended up being his final show and his final tour. Yeah, it, that, that was a tough one. I know, so unexpected, just absolutely devastating. But your book is, is, as I mentioned, is in the 33 and a third series where they highlight significant albums. I thought a good place to start is, is if you could give us your quick pitch to them because they ask for a lot of info on what it is that you wanted to explore with this record. 
So the 33 and a third series has been going for, I guess, a little more than a decade now. It's currently published by Bloomsbury Academic, and there are about 140 books in the series. My book is 139. And as 33 and a third would suggest, every book is about a specific, usually, I'm making air quotes, great record. And beyond that, writers have an incredible amount of autonomy and latitude to approach their subjects in any way they see fit. And then you have other people who go to the other end, and they are very deeply enmeshed in the sort of the mechanics of the production of a record. My book follows sort of in a different, though uh, populated vein in the series, which kind of takes the record as a starting point for both an analysis of the artist's career and the album, but also kind of uses a launching point to get other sort of social and cultural preoccupations corruptions, milestones, whatever the record it is, or the author's approach is, will unearth certain things about, you know, American culture, et cetera, et cetera. My pitch was, you know, obviously, or rarely will this be anyone's favorite Tom Petty record, but I think that it's more interesting to look at something that was striving to reach to a different artistic register than Petty had been doing before, and that was then pretty much comprehensively or objectively a failure in that striving than it would be to look at a record of his career that is more sort of conceptually coherent and polished and, and, and perfected. And the reason that I think that makes Southern Accents interesting is, one, Petty had been a rock star for a long time. He was ready to sort of raise his game a bit, and he decided that he should try to do something that was a little bit more ambitious from an artistic and conceptual standpoint. So he set out to write and record a concept album about the American South. Now, there's a lot of stuff about the recording sessions that are interesting. This is the session where Petty notoriously turned his hand into powder late one night, frustrated when trying to mix Rebels, the opening song. This is also the record that the sort of musical coherence of the theme was sort of torn into shatters when he brought on Dave Stewart, Eurythmics, to record a couple of songs, which sort of destabilized the, the sort of thematic integrity of the record. So that stuff is going on that's interesting. In I also think that when you look at Petty's career after Southern Accents, and to some extent the record that came after it, 1987's Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, that Petty's sort of full moon fever, Southern Californian phase, which is what a lot of people really associate with Petty of a certain age, that was in many ways kind of an allergic reaction to the attempted and then the ultimate failure of Southern accents, and to some extent, Let Me Up, I've Had Enough. So I think that even though it might not be his best, it is in many ways his most pivotal record of his career, because it was a reaction to that which created the full moon fever and, uh, and that later Petty. One of the things that I found very interesting about the record is that it was almost always already going to be doomed to fail as a document about the American South. As I think I say somewhere in the book, it's both too much and too little about the South. And Petty, despite himself, and this is not intentional, and some people think I've called Petty a racist and a Confederate, and I haven't. But I think that it is pretty clear to me that there are a lot of the trappings and the sort of dirty remainder of the lost cause of the Confederacy and these sort of cultural myths that have been handed down for the last 150 years that informed Petty's understanding of what the South is and about what was acceptable, what would be sort of seen as neutral in the culture, when in fact it's not neutral at all, such as the Confederate flag, that it was interesting to look at Petty as an example of uh, the way that this sort of pervasive lost cause Confederate apologist stuff seeps into everything, even someone who was as sort of moderate or even politically liberal as Tom Petty. And then finally, I would be remiss to say that one of the reasons that I found this record particularly fascinating is that in 2015, after uh, Dylan Roof shot up the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, hoping to, quote, instigate a race war, Tom Petty called up Rolling Stone and said, you know, I want to talk about some stuff. And he brought up the fact that he had toured under the, the battle flag throughout the, the Southern Accents tour, which was recorded in the, pack, the Plantation album and um, video. 
he wanted to apologize for that and say that, uh, quote, he didn't think of how that would look to a black person. And so what I think is great about that is that it shows that Petty not only grew and actually ended up with a fuller sort of empathy for other Americans who might not share the same history as he did or might not buy into the same heritage that he did, but he shows that he is not even afraid of admitting that he's wrong out of the blue. No one was really asking for Tom Petty to talk about this in 2015, but he just wanted to be a good example to people and show why you know, functioning with more compassion and more empathy is probably a better move than less compassion and less empathy. And for that, I think Petty's a bit of a hero. And so all that stuff is encapsulated in the record and in the book. And it's a lot to handle in 31 or 32,000 words. <laughs> the book ultimately ends up being kind of about the mistakes we make, how we atone for those mistakes, and how we learn about our country, about learning about ourselves. That's really well stated. That's a ton to unpack. So let me let me try and do it just piecemeal. It, that's the good stuff. I mean, that's what the book is about. That's what this call is about. And I think that's what people hopefully will want to take away from this. And we'll get to the music as well. You grew up in the South, correct? Well, you know, that's arguable. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. And so I feel like Louisville, Kentucky is Southern. Some people classify it as Midwestern. Kentucky itself is Southern. I feel like whether or not you consider Louisville Midwestern or Southern depends on geography you live in within Louisville and the economics you come from within Louisville. So it's a sort of geography and class thing, you know, about being Southern or Midwestern. I identify as a Southerner and I identify Louisville as a Southern town. You know, all the things that you talked about, I think context, particularly in this time period where Petty's growing up, is really important, and it's quite a bit different from today's reality. And you talk a bit in your book, and I was really struck by this because I know this well, is to how Southern mythology is often handed down, unquestioned and regurgitated. And it's not necessarily specifics. It's more, I don't know, overarching themes or just... I use myself as example in the story about Lee surrendered a Grant at Appomattox. The lore is that, you know, Grant was filthy and disheveled, likely drunk, and Lee was just a sterling regal icon of Marshall Grant grandeur and heroism, which is just entire fabrication. There's a lot of this stuff was created by Jeff Davis and his cronies when they realized the war was lost. And basically, they needed to say, well, we need to sort of reset this <laughs> and figure out a way to talk about this that isn't solely about slavery and reincorporate ourselves without too much punishment into the American community. This impulse in the, eight, in, the, in the late 1860s ended up sort of structuring a lot of American history. It was totally like the 50th anniversary of Gettysburg. At that point, any notion of, of race and slavery was pretty much eliminated from the celebration. It was really about bringing together people who fought on either sides of the war to celebrate their shared valor. From that moment on, like that's where these stories started. Uh, the Yankees really won because they had more money and they had more manpower. They actually weren't any more fierce fighters or, or better military commanders. All that sort of stuff seeps up and forms even school books in the South to this day. You know, it's something I certainly have heard some of those stories, perhaps not quite as specific, but in terms of young boys or, or something of a certain age, the Confederate flag, it wasn't seen as what it is now. And that's that's no apologies intended, but that's just the reality, I think. The line about, about the Civil War being about states' rights as opposed to the states' right to possess other humans ended up like molting and modifying itself into these arguments about heritage. And so the heritage argument is really, I would say, and people get mad at me, is really just sort of an, a, an apology for Confederate enslavement people. Um, and, but yeah, that allows a lot of people, or a lot, a lot of people in the, in the 70s, 80s, 60s, and even to this day, to sort of excuse the iconography of the Confederacy, such as the battle flag, as something that was, as Petty said at his time, just like the wallpaper of the South the mascot of the South, even though it still carried within it that history. And I mean, you, you mentioned things, context being different and the reality being different. I agree with you up to the point where I disagree.
agree with you. And I think that, yeah, times were different, but the thing that's changed is that suddenly people are paying more attention to black people, right? It's not like controversies about the flag or things that were just created in the last couple of years, you know, and even, even people were mad at Petty at the time. And, and that's what I meant, especially Florida and Gainesville in that area. It was very racially segregated and there wasn't a lot of crossover. Um, and that extended, you know, through parts of Florida. But, um, you know, Petty grew up poor. His dad, I think, beat him. So he's got this kind of unusual prism, right? And what I find interesting in your book, and we'll start to turn towards music, um, is you'd really put Petty as a Southerner and musically as well as culture. You know, I look at it and I see things like, for instance, Leonard Skinner was from Jacksonville and, and, and the Allman Brothers Band a little bit further and then Daytona and all that. The Heartbreakers from the beginning, and, and I was at the age where I heard that first record when it came out, and mostly because, you know, a lot of people thought it was a punk rock record, you know, because he had the leather jacket on. The Heartbreakers were always different from those bands, but especially, say, on, like, Damn the Torpedoes, his breakthrough record. There was always this kind of L.A. sound, yeah. the jangle, that kind of thing. But then, as you mentioned, you know, Tom could turn very Southern in a half a second. And I'm curious, you know, how you think that informs kind of these songs and, and, and the way his career arc was, especially at the beginning there. Petty's life circumstances are very interesting. You know, his grandmother was a Native American. They ended up in Florida because they were running away from people who were angry at his grandfather for marrying a Native American woman. And then Gainesville itself, you know, being the home of the University of Florida is a progressive or a liberal enclave in North Florida, which is in many ways, politically speaking, just like South Georgia, right? So all these things sort of are in the mix and discussed a little bit in the book. And that's why I think that, you know, looking at someone like Petty, it's interesting how all this sort of other history slash heritage stuff still bubbled up in his thinking when he started to think about the South. As for the Heartbreakers, Southern Band versus L.A. Band, I think it's entirely right, or it would be entirely incorrect to lump the Heartbreakers in with the Allman Brothers Band or Molly Hatcher or any other sort of like a Southern rock band, which isn't really my contention. I don't think I ever call them a Southern rock band. I just call them kind of a Southern band insofar as they roll. They swing, and to some extent, I think that they're indebted to, in you know, sort of soul and sort of like Fame Studios, Muscle Shoals type thing. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of L.A. LA stuff that goes on because all those records, all those first records were recorded in LA. He had already gone out there. He was already with Danny Cordell for the first record. But I believe that the the Heartbreakers have always been at root a rock and roll band. And if you're a rock and roll band, it's really hard to divorce that from sort of like the sounds of the South. Now, how they presented themselves is different, right? I mean, I know everyone thought he was either a punk rocker or a new wave guy when the first record was released because there's bullets in his leather jacket or whatever. But that's kind of a confusion of the visual with the oral, right? Because when you listen to it, I don't think with the exception of like the kind of crazed urgency of the drums that open up that record on Rockin' Around With You. But even then, and I point this out in the book, even if you look at American Girl, the sort of like one of the standard bearers of the petty legacy, people mostly compare that song to the birds, right? Because of, of that really iconic opening guitar line. But if you pay attention to the rhythm of that, that's really just the bow diddly beat. You know, which was a Central African rhythm brought over and incorporated into a lot of African American music in the South. So even on the first record, where they're you know in LA and embedded in LA, this Southern stuff is still suffusing and inspiring some of their greatest moments. Where I think it kind of gets interesting is they turn away from the stuff a little bit. It becomes a lot more sort of straight and rigid in the hips when we get to Long After Dark. And Long After Dark is the record that he was disappointed in that made him want to do the Southern thing. But then when he turns toward the South for Southern accents, it gets a little bananas and schizophrenic because that's when he totally adopts all the sort of over-enthusiastic production flaws of the 80s. Like that's, that's my opinion, right? People can disagree about that. I just think a lot of the production on Southern accents is bad. And that's a really kind of ironic <laughs> 
since this was supposed to be a record about the South. There's a point where we can say, well, here's where it could have been, right? Here's where it could have actually gone Southern. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you bring up a few things I was going to mention. One is, I would say, Long After Dark is my oh, least really? favorite Petty album. You know, coming, and I knew you were a fan. I knew you were a fan. But coming after Damn the Torpedoes, and most of it is because of that synthesizer sound. Yeah. I, I just can't take it. And, you know, but what's the hit off of that is um, You Got Lucky. It's awful. I think it's C-level petty. We'll get into favorite records because let's talk, let's talk about the music and the production of Southern accents since that's what the book is about. You know, feel free to put out Southern concepts that you think Petty's set to present and I'll be happy to jump in and, and we'll go chronologically. So, you know, the record leads off with Rebels. Well, there's a couple of different origin stories to the record. When Petty was on tour rolling through the South on the Long After Dark tour, artistically frustrated and becoming increasingly frustrated with the commercial response to Long After Dark, he decided this is when he began thinking about the Southern record. And the first move he did was just to sort of write down words that he thought were evocative of the South. And this is things he talked about when I met with Mike Campbell and Ben Montench for the book. They both brought this up. But he wrote down words like trailer, apartment, rebels, just so these one-word, um, uh, evocative one-word, like keywords that would sort of clue him in to certain things about the culture. So I don't think, and Petty said this to to some extent himself, it was not supposed to be a fully fleshed Faulknerian narrative about the South. It was just supposed to be a series of vignettes, most of which were related to the guy in Rebels, which we're getting to that now. So the, the Southern concept was really a series of vignettes about life in the South for this guy who's kind of a down on his luck, down in the heel loser. Rebels is the first track on the record, and I think it's both an incredible rock song, a poorly recorded rock song. And a rather problematic rock song, right? So, like, from the 145 perspective, I think uh, Rebels is, is a pretty great track. Like, the band's pretty ferocious. The lyrics are good. The vocal performance is really solid. Um, I think that they sort of pulled its teeth a little bit in the production, that they kind of messed it up a little bit. It's got the horns in it that um, the Petty termed as Civil War horns. And the narrative is really about a guy who's just kind of kicking around, ultimately blaming a lot of his woes, not on himself, but on the culture in which he inhabits. And to a large extent, and especially in the last verse where he invokes basically Sherman's march to the sea, um, he's blaming the Union victory over the Confederacy for creating a culture in which he sort of is not allowed to get ahead of himself. This, this is the good stuff. Um, and we'll have to watch it because this will tell you a little bit about me. But I, I'm not a huge fan of this song. I th oh, really? I think it's beneath Petty in the sense that it's very simplistic to me. However, you know, one thing, he did acoustic live versions, especially in concert, that really presented a different perspective and a much better context. And at that point, I kind of flipped a little bit. But I went back and listened to this. And it's like, you know, I can see the opening the tour with that show and people yeah. pumping their fists and all that. And I, and I get that. I have problems with it because it's kind of got this rah-rah for the Confederacy thing about it. And there's a whole part of the book where I talk about how Petty was deeply embedded to Randy Newman, who earlier than 85 had released a record called Good Old Boys, which is a series of slice of life stuff about the South. There's a song called Rednecks in particular, which most people today know Randy Newman as the Pixar composer. But in the 70s, he wrote a series of kind of amazing records that they're not quite satire. I don't know what they are, but they're hard to listen to without really difficult responses. If you want something that's just bananas, listen to Sail Away 
or listen to the song Rednecks. Those two are just shocking. But also the music is beautiful. Like it feels pulled right out of like the Stephen Foster songbook. It's, it's, he's incredibly complicated. And Petty was trying to style himself after Randy Newman, particularly with the song Rebels. And he misfired. Randy Newman was known for creating characters in the songs. Petty wasn't. And then the way he performed it was really more of an endorsement of the sentiment, at least from my read, than it was performance of perspective. Then he stopped playing it because people were raising up the flag. He stopped playing it for several years. And when he brought it back, it was as this sort of subdued, acoustic, mournful number, which was a lot more introspective. And then did, I think, lend the song a lot more gravity. I mean, I think it's a highlight of the Southern Accents record, but I understand why people wouldn't think it's a great song and kind of beneath them, because it definitely doesn't have the genius of Refugee or, or Wildflowers or, or things like that. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Well, then we have, we have the first of what you call the Stewart Follies, and that's It Ain't Nothing to Me, and that's Dave Stewart, and you can take it from there. Southern Accents was recorded in Petty's home studio, which is the first time they had done that. It was also the first time that Petty and Mike Campbell were going to be the producers. This was supposed to be an 18-track double album about the American South. It got quagmired down. A lot of this has to do with substance abuse, a lot of booze, a lot of cocaine, uh, and then it just had to do with the fact that there was no sort of producer on scene to keep them on track. So it became a little bit indulgent. At a certain point, Petty was asked to come down and meet Dave Stewart, who was cutting a track with uh, Stevie Nicks and Jimmy Iving. Tom Petty had put Stevie Nicks on the trail of Dave Stewart because he did not want to give her another song. He had given her Stop Dragging My Heart Around for her 81 record Belladonna, which was a Hard Promises track. Anyway, there's a little bit of backstory, which you can read more about in my book. He ends up going down, working on a track with Stevie Nicks. She goes home late at night. The guys, under what power remains magic, uh, stayed up all night cutting a song, which ended up becoming Don't Come Around Here No More. And when Stevie comes back the next day, she's like, that's a great song, but it's a great Tom Petty song. She fires Jimmy Iovine, and Tom then has this song. That song came together really quickly. Although they worked on it for months subsequently, the initial sort of demo tracks of Don't Come Around Here No More came together really quickly, which was 
was the exact opposite of what uh, had been happening with the Heartbreakers and Southern Accents. So Tom decided to write a couple of more songs with Dave Stewart, who, as he said in an interview with the journalist Paul Zolo, Dave Stewart recorded songs like Taking Polaroid Pictures. It Ain't Nothing to Me is one of those Polaroid pictures, and I think it shows. Where Don't Come Around Here No More is iconic and beguiling and bewitching, although I do have some problems with it, It Ain't Nothing to Me seems to be almost entirely regrettable. I think it sounds bad. I think it's beholden to the worst impulses of like the mid-80s white boy funk. I think the lyrics are just sort of tossed off, mean-spirited without actually being witty in certain places. It just seems like it's low-hanging fruit and pretty much beneath Petty's artistry. I can't possibly get any sort of reasoning how they, this could be the song that follows up Rebels, right? I know. Musically, lyrically, it's completely confusing to the, the so-called storyline. Yeah, it makes no sense to me. I think one of the things I talk about in the book is that when you look at Southern Accents, it was supposed to be an 18-song double album about the South. Finally, after you know months and months and months of getting nowhere, they brought Jimmy Iovine back in, who had produced Damn Torpedoes and other records. And Iveen said, no, you're crazy. We're cutting this down. And he sort of slashed it down to nine songs. Within those nine songs on the record, there's kind of three different albums. There's the initial core songs. There's five of those. There's the um, three Dave Stewart songs. And then there are just sort of a couple of outliers, Mary's New Car and The Best of Everything. So it's totally sonically incoherent. So people could say, well, was this not a concept album? After the fact, you know, my conversations with Ben and Mike, you know, it was still put forward as a concept record. Although it, it's hard to think of it as a successful concept record when you have It Ain't Nothing to Me coming in between, like on the same side as Rebels and the songs of the Nexons. It's bananas. Well, you mentioned Don't Come Around Here No More, uh, just a, a tremendous song, wildly out of place, both in terms of production values and context on those records. And then there's the video, which, you know, what do you say except what the <laughs> heck is that? And, you know, a great, great song, but it, it blows out the concept. I mean, I think that it fits the concept more than the other Dave Stewart song, if for no other reason than Don't Come Around Here No More is just such a, like a snarl of Southern heartburn. <laughs> Right, I can kind of see that fitting. You know, it actually comes from uh, one night when Joe Walsh of the Eagles was trying to get Stevie Nicks to reconcile with him, and she screamed, "Don't come around here no more!" And uh, and Jimmy Vivine was there with her at the time. <laughs> That's another whole book. It is, There's it is. hundreds of those. It hundreds of those. I think it, I think it fits to some extent, and since it is such I don't know such a, a mesmerizing artifact, I almost have to forgive it for being on the record. But it doesn't really move the the thematic Southern accents forward at all. And I also think it's a great sounding thing, but it's not a real great song. I feel like it's almost as much a vehicle for like Tom Petty's charisma as it is an actual song. It's hard to play it on an acoustic guitar and pull it off. What is a great song is the title track. Oh, um, yeah, Southern Accents is this really brilliant plaintive ballad. It's got Jack Nietzsche string arrangement, which probably is entirely unnecessary. Um, the lore is that this song came to Petty late one night, 4 a.m., just sitting at his piano. And it's a really beautiful, autobiographically informed rumination on growing up in the South, familial love. Yeah, it's, it's a stone classic. I mean, if, if the rest of this album matched the beauty and focus and the nuance of that song, we'd be having a totally different conversation, perhaps about one of the all-time masterpiece records. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right. If everything was as quality as that song, then yeah, this would be an entirely different record. That All that having been said, I think it would be disingenuous if I didn't point out the fact that there's an entire chapter that's not devoted entirely to that song, but almost entirely to that song, where I do think it's still symptomatic of some of the sort of stunted Southern ways of thinking. Now, that doesn't mean, and I 
I probably should have said this at the outset. Even though I'm highly critical of this record and all the Southern stuff, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy it, right? I just think that, you know, I'm only taking as petty as seriously as he took himself. Early in the making of Southern Accents, he was like, look, he's like most rock and roll is shit. He doesn't want to do that. He didn't want to do three-chord love songs. He wanted to expand himself, and he did. When he expanded himself, he also brought up all this stuff that's sort of subconscious and just sort of like the cultural pathologies that are in us all. And even though that song is so beautiful, and close to perfect and maybe the most beautiful song he ever recorded it still i would argue is caught up in all that stuff well let's talk about the track that opened side too because petty himself told the journalist i hate that oh yeah song. yeah he's just trash he called he called it trash yeah that would yeah. be make it better forget about me I mean, I feel like you could let him have the last word on that. The thing that's most interesting to me about that, I was talking to Ben Mon, I was like, just the sequencing on this record, to go from Southern Accents, the song, to make it better, it's just, it's jarring. You know, it's like falling off a wagon or falling down steps. It's shocking. And Ben Mon pointed out that I was thinking with, with CD eyes or CD brain or with MP3 brain, that the fact that it was on a different side was supposed to give sort of like a palate mm-hmm. cleansing effect to it. And I guess that's kind of right. I mean, I'm not going to dispute Ben Mon's attention about the intention of that. But it's, uh, I find it very striking. I think it's still a little bit better than It Ain't Nothing to Me as a song. But it falls victim to all the overindulgences of It Ain't Nothing to Me. I mean, they both kind of start with this weird studio gibberish. They move into highly processed electric guitar sounds, too much chorus, maybe some flanger in there somewhere. They're just an entirely inorganic sounding song, which is not at all what you would love to get from Petty, which, you know, the Heartbreakers were one of the best, a, a great and similar rock band, and this is not a rock song so what the hell is spike <laughs> spike's a result of all the guys in the band um except for benmont doing a bunch of heroin and benmont doing some cocaine spike is one of the two tracks that were cut not in petty's home studio for the record um spike is this strange rolling kind of a boogie song about a guy wearing a dog collar that goes into a hard scrabble gainesville bar these sort of like old timers just sort of like razz him and make fun of him. Petty adopts this deep, almost caricature of a southern redneck accent to sing through the song. But the sort of mashup of those two different highs is responsible for the kind of strange groove on Spike. It's not one of my favorite songs. It's a little bit silly. When you hear it live, Petty always introed it with this long story about how he was outside one time and saw a guy walk in with a dog collar. It fits in with the Southern theme because even though I don't think it was intended this way, it really ends up being a song about the anxiety of the future, right? And it ends up being a strange, nostalgic eruption on behalf of these oldsters in the bar that Petty is portraying, though I do not think it follows necessarily the record's, quote, protagonist, the guy that's in Rebels and the guy that's dogs on the run. I'm not sure if the guy with the dog collar is the same guy. I get what he's trying to do here. You know, I, I was a, a big punk rock fan. I didn't dress that way or have a mohawk, but that wasn't well accepted at the time. And I think you nailed it when you talk about how resistant to change that Southerners can be. It's just, it comes across kind of mean-spirited and dark, and maybe that was the intent. It does come across as mean-spirited and dark. You know, what I said about it, sort of like being nostalgia and fear of the future, that is my read on it. I don't think that was necessarily even performed that way, right? I think that he was trying to inhabit the mean guys. So I think my position of Petty in 84 and 85 when he was recording the record is probably that was his point of view for the song. I think it would have been different in later performances. It was cut for the Let Me Up, I've had enough sessions, the next record, but there's an outtake that you can find on playback, and I think it's also on YouTube, and it's called Moon Pie. It's only about 90 seconds, but it's pretty funny, and they're, the guys are just screwing around in the studio, and Petty's kind of adopting the same voice. And when I brought up Moon Pie with Mike Campbell when I was talking to him, he was like, well, that's Petty's Southern guy. 
It's like you'd be hanging out with him, and he would suddenly just start talking in this accent, like acting like the Moon Pie guy. And you can hear it on the Tom Petty radio show, too, on Sirius, when he's, if you listen to old like archive episodes of that. So for that, it's interesting, right? It's interesting that this is sort of like a thing that Petty did. Well, I think we're going to agree on the next one. Dogs on the Run is just a great song. Uh, I think it's incredible. Yeah, it, it's amazing. That is the unheralded best track from the record. Unheralded, right? I mean, Southern Accents is heralded. But the, the song that I want to urge on people, if they don't know this record at all, other than Southern Accents and Don't Come Around Here No More, is give dogs on the run a listen. It fits in with the Southern theme insofar as it's a guy kind of being knocked around with a girl and there's some booze going on and there's some displacement of responsibility. It's just a real damn fine song. And lyrically, it's well-written. The chord, like the, the music of it is incredibly innovative. I think it's another 145 song, but there's a reason why so many songs are 145 songs, you know? It's a great vocal, and, and it's also a great metaphor that really fit his concept. Yeah, yeah. I think that song is, is really incredible. And you can also find acoustic versions of that. So you worked closely with Mary Clauser, who worked with Petty's management, and she, I think, was very helpful to you in this book. I cold called his office to try to get an interview, and Mary answered the phone. And people who are Petty fans know that she has been with him since the beginning. She was very, very helpful in setting up the interview with Petty that never happened. You know, everyone was like, what record do you want to talk about? Not Wildflowers, not Damn the Torpedoes. <laughs> and she said, well, let me talk to Tom. And she got back to him within a day or so and said, he's eager to talk about Southern Accents. But he's going into rehearsals for the Music Care, Person of the Year, then rehearsals for the 40th anniversary tour, then the tour. So you'll need to wait until after the tour. Contact us in the first week of October. Um, but then some weeks later, she kind of wrote to me out of the blue saying, hey, you know, I'm sorry that this didn't happen. I feel bad. But, you know, if you'd like, I can set you up with interviews with Mike Campbell and Ben Montench if you would like to. So, yeah, Mary was um, was quite helpful from the beginning with getting access to, to guys in the band. And apparently she got a new car because uh, Tom Petty <laughs> wrote a song, Mary's New Car, which was the impetus for this. You know, I hadn't listened to this album in many years, and, and reading your book, I went back to Spotify and, and checked it out. I kind of remembered this song as a throwaway, but there's something that's really innocent and quite compelling there. So basically, the story about Mary's new car is like, Mary got a car, Mary Clauser got a new car, she showed up the management office, and she was very proud of it, and she showed it to guys in the band, and then I guess later that night, um, Tom was just sort of screwing around in the studio. This might be the actual first thing specifically cut for Southern accents. And it could just be this was the first thing cut once the home studio was set up and had nothing to do with the record, with the concept, and just kind of made it on, which kind of makes me like that song a whole lot more. Uh, well, I think that's part of it. It's, it's a real low-key charmer. I really like that song, I have to say. But then we close with the best of everything. I love this song. The backstory behind that record is that it was initially cut for the Hard Promises session and then left off for some inexplicable reasons. I mean, you can find songs on Hard Promises that don't deserve to be there as much as the best of everything needs to be there. Robbie Robertson was the music director for this Scorsese film called The King of Comedy that Robert De in, and he approached Petty and said, hey, do you have any songs? And Petty gave him the best of everything. He said, do with it what you want. And Robertson said, I will, but you, you're not going to hear it. And so he ended up cutting a verse from it, adding a bunch of very bandy, band-sounding horns, and then had Richard Manuel double the vocal line, which you can hear on the released version. For um, contractual reasons, Petty's label wouldn't allow uh, the song's inclusion on the soundtrack because it was on a different label, and it came back to Petty. He didn't hear it at all until the finished product, and it was a bit of a revelation. And as I mentioned earlier, there are a couple of origin stories to Southern Accents. One's the, the one-word song titles. The other is that when the best of everything come back to Petty, because he was, he was just sort of 
mulling around the beginning of the recording process, and he heard the horns that Robertson had put on that record, he decided, oh, those are very Civil War horns, and so they ended up on Rebels and you know, and some other spots in the record, I think. You can actually hear, you can't hear the original un-Robertson-produced version of it, because the horns and Manuel are still on it, but on the compilation that was published a year or so ago, American Treasure, you can listen to the entire song. The, the verse that Robertson cut out has been restored in that version. So you can kind of hear the initial song that Tong wrote, although not originally recorded. It's a lovely song. It's almost too sentimental to be a part of the Southern theme. <laughs> Our guest today is author Michael Washburn, who is the author of Tom Petty's Southern Accents in the 33 and a Third series, dissecting and digesting that record. We've talked a lot about how some of the songs don't fit at all and how some of them are just kind of misplaced. You put together a really interesting shadow album, eliminating what you felt didn't fit, and then you plugged in some unreleased songs in there that were either more conceptually in line or around the time period. And it made for a really compelling track listing. There was only one song I couldn't find, but I put it up on the All Music Book Spotify account and called it the Shadow Album. So I'm just curious, what was your process for discovering and placing these songs? A lot of Petty fans have sort of played this hypothetical game. You know, what would the perfected Southern accents have been? It's, you know, in a lot of interviews and in liner notes and in things like playback, the box set that came out in 95, there are outtakes that were recorded. As I said, there were 18 tracks initially set for inclusion on the record. A lot of those were cut. A lot of them have vanished. Some of them weren't cut. And there's one song called Sheets that I can find no mention of. No, neither Benmont nor Mike nor Mary had ever heard of it or there were any sort of vestiges of it, at least they told me. Sheets would have been interesting because it was supposedly about the Ku Klux Klan. That would have been a very interesting thing to read, even if it was just a lyric sheet, to see what Betty's perspective was on that. But you can find a bunch of songs that were initially cut for the record and then left off. Some of them showed up on later records, like the Apartment song, or some showed up just as outtakes on playback. Now, I felt like I would just play the game that a lot of like deeply devoted Petty fans, let's piece together from the masterpiece that could have been, the masterpiece that could have been. And to do that, I think you need to drop some songs from the record as released, you know, make it better and uh, ain't nothing to me. I also think you, you drop Mary's new car and you probably drop the best of everything, although I know people find that contentious. And then you add these other songs that were cut. For instance, the apartment song that most people know was released on Full Moon Fever, but the version of the song that was recorded for Southern Accents features Stevie Nicks doubling his vocal line, and it's just much wilder. It's a much more spirited performance of the song. There's a song called Trailer, which is similar. But either way, I mean, what you picked and put in there does make a more in-focus picture. It does. And there's one song in particular called The Image of Me. It's a cover. The old Wayne Kemp song that was the first top five hit for like the 70s and 80s and 60s, Country Coon or Conway Twitty. I urge you to find the song and it vanishes from YouTube sometimes, but it's on playback. So you find the image of me, and what's incredible about the song is, one, Denny Cordell, who produced the first couple of records, had a falling out with Petty about money. But he came back on the scene during the Southern Accent sessions, and he just got them to, like, cut a song. And they cut it live, which is something the band hadn't been doing for the last decade or so. And it is, I think, one of the best-sounding songs that the Heartbreakers ever recorded. It's entirely organic. It rolls. It's just an amazing song. It's fully in focus with the theme. And I think if you look at the image of me and you think about the image of me alongside the song Southern Accents, and if you think about different production values on things like Rebels and Dogs on the Run and the Apartment song, a song called Walking from the Fire, which was finally released on American Treasure a couple years 
years ago, which was initially cut for Southern Accents, you can really come up with an incredibly powerful track list that rivals most any of his other records. Which is not to say, like, so there's that. Like, you can make a better record that way, but I still think that all the, the sort of Southern culture stuff would still be there, but you would just have a better version of that. Well, we've talked a lot about the failure, maybe the disconnect in, in putting this album together. I'm not sure there can be a bigger, massive fail than the cover art. Oh. <laughs> I worked for 25 years in the music industry doing graphic design, and boy, oh boy, somebody was asleep at the wheel here. It's pretty amazing. The record album cover has um, this guy cutting wheat with a big sigh. It's on the cover of the book, too. What that painting actually is, is a famous American painter Winslow Homer's 1865 work, The Veteran Reaps a New Field. When you're looking at a, at a concept album about the American South, and then you decide to pick up, I mean, it's, it's hard to even begin talking about this. Because <laughs> I'm basically saying the record has Confederate impulses. But what the deep irony is that, you know, the veteran in Homer's painting is a Union soldier who's just returned from the war and he's tending his overgrown fields of wheat. And there's a couple of ways to know that this was not a Southern soldier. One, back then and now, wheat was not the Southern crop. Cotton was a Southern crop, right? Particularly in like the critical vocabulary of how you talk about Southern and Northern culture, wheat has pretty much always been Northern and cotton has always been Southern. So that's sort of one obvious reason why this is an inappropriate piece of cover art. But also, if you look at the actual painting, you go to the Met where you see really good reproductions of it, his canteen and jacket are in the corner of the painting and they say U.S. So he's obviously a former Union soldier in the Civil War. And it's just so deeply ironic that this is the cover art they ended up choosing. The art director for the record, a guy named Tommy Steele, I reached out to talk to him about the record. And I had had conversations with Ben Mott and Mike about the cover, and they didn't really remember much about the selection process. Petty kept pretty strong control over this stuff. And he told him that he had come up with the painting and, and showed it to Tom. And Tom was like, well, that's great. And I asked Tommy Steele if he knew that it was actually a Union soldier in Homer's painting. And he didn't, even in like, 2018 or 2017, whenever I had a conversation with him. He still wasn't aware of that. I had thought it was possible that the lost cause thesis that's part of my book would be more difficult to maintain if Petty had intentionally chosen a Union soldier, just sort of confound the entire scene. But he didn't. It was just sort of like a thoughtless selection. Yeah, and I thought maybe there's some unintended irony, you know, perhaps suggesting the North wiped out what was special about the South. But no, I don't think that's what's going on. No, there. There's not that much thought went into it. That would have also been a pretty brilliant move, but th that was not part of the thinking. Um, I know that this was the first record where Petty's face wasn't on the cover, so he wanted that to happen. And just this looked Southern to him, which is, is kind of funny. Interesting tidbit is that this painting has long been held by the Metropolitan Museum in New York, and Steele told me that they got the rights to reproduce this on what was a multi-platinum selling record for a total cost of $10. <laughs> and maybe that's it. It was a budget move. <laughs> well, that's very Southern. It's funny that it's such a troubled record in, in many ways, and there's a lot of beauty on there as well. You know, I think that should be maybe the final word that's emblematic of this, that the cover art is just also off. Is, is this your least favorite Petty album? No, my least favorite Petty record is the one that follows, uh, Let Me Up, I've Had Enough. You know, even though Southern Accents has these problems, I think it's still Petty really trying to reach for something and missing the mark and coming up with a few high points and a lot of low points. But still, it is a, is a document of someone really trying to do something different. Yeah, and I think Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, he was just doing some songs, but it's also marbled with uh, the same sort of bad production. The one thing I will say about that record is even though it's not my favorite, it would be really different if, if they had cut Let Me Up, I've Had Enough 10 years because the songs are pretty angry. Mm -hmm. the, the production seems to be at odds with the song. So I think that's my least favorite record. Let Me Up, I've Had Enough. Well, you know mine. <laughs> Wait Until Dark was not my favorite. And I was coming kind of at post Damn the Torpedoes. And I saw Petty on that tour down in Florida. 
Oh, wow. That other one is such a different thing. But yeah. um, So what's your favorite? And I'm going to just qualify this by saying a favorite record with the Heartbreakers and then a favorite record under just the Tom Petty nomica. Man, for a Heartbreakers record, I'm torn between the first record and Damn the Torpedoes, I think. I'm with you there. You know, I also really think that Echo is a strong record. Love that record. That's a record. Great record. Those are my favorites. Probably the first record of Torpedoes. As far as my favorite Tom Petty record, it's Wildflowers. Definitely. Well, you see that? Even though Wait Until Dark kind of messed us up there, we're very much on the same page. On that note, that was a very, very fascinating dive. Your book is really interesting. And if Petty fans want to really get down and deep into a record and the production and what goes on behind it, I'd recommend them checking out Southern Accents by Michael Washburn on the 33 and a Third series. And thank you so much for spending some time with us, Michael. Oh, thanks so much, Steve. I enjoyed it. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. And you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer extraordinaire, Steve Folsom, who can be found at www.fullsound.com. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music-books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.